And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, the popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host. Onyx Sayadian. And today we have a guest that we have had in the past. Last time he spoke about the sacraments, and this time we are going to interview him in regard to Christ-centered preaching. And this guest is Chris Gordon of Escondido URC. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thanks, guys. It's wonderful to be with you. Yeah, thanks for coming back, brother. How you been? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not raining in Southern California. It's a beautiful day, so uh, I can't complain. <laughs> yeah, we, it's won't talk, we won't talk politics. So no, <laughs> no, that would be a very rainy day. <laughs> okay, um, Chris. So anyway, tell the audience a little a bit about yourself uh, if people don't know who you are. Sure. Um, I've been in the pastoral ministry now for coming on 19 years. So uh, I had my first church was in uh, Linden, Washington. I pastored there after I graduated from seminary from 2004 to 2012. And um, 2012, I received a call of the Escondido United Reformed Church. And I've been here ever since coming on 10 years next year. So time flies. I have four, uh, four children and a wonderful wife. Um, what else you want to know? <laughs> and- can you please tell everybody where you went to seminary? I went to Westminster Seminary, California. Yeah. Nice. Oh, um, four. Nice. The gold, the gold standard. <laughs> <laughs> so, some would say, some would say not. But, uh, right. I had a great time there. And, um, yeah. Wonderful blessing. I can't speak highly enough of my time at Westminster. Right. All right. So let's just jump on into it. So the topic today is Christ-centered preaching. What is Christ-centered preaching, Chris? Sure. Um, That's a really important question, I think, in our day because um, it really affects your sort of goal and what you're trying to accomplish when you approach a text and you deliver it to to God's people um, as opposed to something like moralism that will look at a text and, um, and try to draw out, you know, the morals of the text and basically try to tell people how to live better. Um, we do want people to live better, but <laughs> the primary goal is the message to be believed. 
uh, really good news that is announced to the ends of the earth of Christ and him crucified. So this is why Paul would say, you know, in, um, in Corinthians, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. That gospel being that objective work of Jesus, uh, all really all throughout scripture that's shown to us in all the pages of scripture, his person and work announced, of course, um, in the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3, um, that Jesus would come. And all of scripture is, has that unifying message of showing us his person and his work. And um, that's the goal of preaching, is to make known this good news of the gospel, of the, the forgiveness of sin. So, so Christ-centered preaching has a great aim in preaching. It is to show Jesus. It is to show his person and work. It is to show all that he's accomplished for us, God for us in his person and work. And um, this is how Jesus told us to do it exactly from Luke 24. So it's not like it's a stretch thing or something that we've imposed on the Bible. It's the unifying message of the Bible throughout redemptive history to show forth Jesus. So all true preaching should have that goal um, to show people Jesus, right? Like the Gentiles asked in, in John 12, sir, uh, sir, show us this Jesus. And that's what we should do. So what specifically about Luke 24 puts us in this position? Yeah, um, well, Luke 24, Jesus could have, uh, in the resurrection, done many things, but he was um, really focused on helping his disciples, tend to be apostles, to go out to the ends of the earth with a mission. And if they didn't understand that, um, they would not understand why God had even set this up and had witnesses to the ends of the earth. So in Luke 24, uh, as the um, disciples on the road to Emmaus are struggling with understanding and seeing the whole story. They should have known the whole story. They should have known that in the Old Testament, all of this was prophesied. All of this had been said that, um, that the Christ had to die and rise again for our sins. This is not a, a New Testament phenomenon. This is an Old Testament phenomenon now come to fulfillment, right? So Jesus is helping them with that. And what he did is illustrate exactly what their ministry would be. I always find it fascinating, Luke 24, their eyes are closed. They can't even see him. And the only way they can see him is when he opens their eyes through the scriptures by revealing himself in the scriptures to him. So, you know, Luke 24 says um, very powerfully, um, you know, oh, foolish ones uh, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. So, so all the prophets. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and we know from the law and the Psalms uh, that are referenced to Jesus will, will say here um, down in verse 44, uh, he met references the, the written law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. They all concern me. So, so there he takes all the genres of scripture essentially and says, all of those scriptures have a central focus on me and my work. And then he, he highlights that in verse 26 and says, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning. So now he illustrates exactly what they're going to go out um, to the ends of the earth and do. He now does for them and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there's, there's sort of the heart of the mission that Jesus captures right in the resurrection, right? Your job is going to be to go do the same. You're going to go out to the ends of the earth and you're going to expound from the scriptures, all the things concerning me. So that's Christ-centered preaching at its best. And I think um, 
what's always remarkable to me is that the first sermon in Acts, that's exactly what Peter did on Pentecost. Mm-hmm. He's, it, it probably wouldn't fit very well uh, our three-point sermons today, <laughs> but Peter seems to take a bunch of collective Old Testament texts and preaches Jesus from them. You know, um, Psalm 16 preaches the resurrection, and he's bringing conviction on the people by showing that this great act of them delivering him up was prophesied all throughout all throughout the scriptures and history, and they should repent and believe and receive the forgiveness of sins. So there was the, the primary goal of all preaching. Very good. Yeah, amen. So thank you for that that description of what Christ-centered preaching is. So there's a, a contention here with some um, Christians and that we know uh, where they, they state that um, that entire idea cannot expand to, throughout the entire scriptures because the, the entire scriptures don't speak of Jesus necessarily. necessarily. So what do you say in regards to that? For example, the Old Testament, Every passage doesn't speak of Christ. How, how would you respond to that? Um, well, first off, you know, there's, there's the important passages in the Old Testament that are very typological, and types and shadows are showing us fulfillment, right? So, so what we have is in the overarching big picture of Scripture, this is what I always like to tell people, when you, when you appreciate this model, the Bible shrinks. <laughs> and now you can see the whole Bible for what it is. When you don't appreciate this model of preaching and looking at the scriptures and evaluating the scriptures, your Bible remains greatly disconnected. And um, you really don't see its coherence and its beauty in showing us uh, the person and the work of Jesus. So, you know, I mean, there, there's a difference between, you know, looking at type and fulfillment and looking at shadows to fulfillment and then allegorizing, which has been a problem throughout history. You know, I, I, I think of the famous one by Harold Camping years ago. Do you guys remember Harold Camping? Um, nobody really talks about Harold Camping anymore, but he used to preach Christ from the floating axe head, remember, on the water. And I, I, I have to admit, I never saw Jesus in the floating axe head. See, that's, that's allegory. And when we can do almost anything, you know, origin in this problem with the scriptures, when we allegorize it, with wild interpretations. So I think there's some fear, probably only with what you're, you're asking there of some who say, this is a grid imposed on, on the scriptures that just doesn't work everywhere. And I would say that we have to be careful to understand what the original author is doing in the particular text that we're looking at. But one thing we can be absolutely sure of is that the original author whether it shows up in the fine details of the text, the original author had the goal in whatever book of the Old Testament to show Jesus. And that's what Jesus is telling us. Um, When we go back to the Old Testament and we look at the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, there was that overarching goal and um, purpose in these writers to show throughout redemptive history the fulfillment and coming of God's Son. Amen. To announce the forgiveness of sins. So, you know, um, some, some Psalms, some texts will be a lot more clear for us in that, you know, for me, like preaching Joseph is bread and butter showing Jesus, right? Um, looking at how he went down into the pit and then was, you know, raised up on high in Egypt and made this great sacrifice for his brothers. Um, 
clearly the intention of the author there is to, to, to preach Jesus to us and to sure. show Jesus. And the Psalms itself, a lot of those are, we can read as very prayers of Jesus, right? Without disregarding that they're prayers of the real people who existed at the time. Sure. Yeah, I can see that as well. Uh, there, it, there are some specifics in regards to um, why they, there is that contention. So, for example, um, you probably you know Dick Mayhew. He mentions in one of his sermons uh, that uh, Christ did not speak of all the scripture, although John 5.39 says all scripture. Uh, in Luke 24, he mentions that he was only referring to Moses' Psalms and the prophets. Here's a clip of what he said. John chapter 5, verse 39, is a favorite of uh, this particular group. Jesus said to the Jews, and chapter 5 doesn't distinguish whether it's the Jewish people, the Pharisees, Sadducees, etc., etc., etc. So it's probably uh, a, a group composed of all of those. You search the scriptures, and their scriptures would be the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that bear witness of me. And I would have no trouble affirming what Jesus said. He didn't say everything, every text, every passage in the Old Testament refers to me. He just said that the Old Testament testifies of him. And it absolutely does in Moses, the Psalter, and the prophets, no problem in believing that. Um, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly the context with which he said that, but um, I, I mean, all of Scripture, when we look at the whole story of the Old Testament, and it's, it's showing its culmination and fulfillment in Jesus, we can't divorce the Scriptures that way and say, hey, some genres do this and some genres don't. Jesus didn't treat the scriptures that way. He was, he was using the major divisions as the Jews understood them when he spoke that way. Um, but that's not diminishing the fact that the minor prophets, uh, you know, suggesting that the minor prophets didn't speak of Jesus. They spoke of Jesus everywhere. So, yeah, so yeah. that's a, a reductionistic kind of view that I think doesn't hold to exactly what the New Testament authors are doing in the way that they use the Old Testament and demonstrate how they're using the Old Testament, particularly the book of Acts. Yeah, my assumption would be the minor prophets, if they are distinct from the major, that, that means that their whole uh, purpose or guidance is from another source of some kind. And so I wouldn't necessarily separate the minor prophets from the major prophets either. I think that's kind of it's not splitting hairs, but uh, I think it's making a, uh, a some kind of separation where, where it doesn't necessarily exist. And I, I would agree with you. Yeah. And, and even like, you know, Matthew one, they're using Micah, they're, they're, they're uh, Matthew one and two, they're working with the minor prophets on the prophecies there. So um, the New Testament supports all of the genres of scripture. And it, it also, um, you know, helps us to appreciate the unity of the inspiration by the spirit of the whole of scripture. All That's scripture correct. Given great, uh, inspiration by God. And if Jesus is teaching us that when he speaks of the major divisions, as the Jews understood them, when speaking of his person and work, we can be absolutely sure it's speaking of the whole of the inspiration as inspired by the spirit, whole of the, the Bible. Right. Especially there's a problem if you don't have the new testament as your priority to interpret the old covenant 
for instance, you do have issues, for instance, in math in the book of Matthew, where the author interprets the book, uh, the passages in Hosea, right, the prophecy in a different way than the author used it in the old covenant. Right, right. That and that's that's a particularly good point. That what we see in fulfillment, you know, how we read prophecy and how we read it back and how we read it forward, we're taught in fulfillment to understand what these prophecies were ultimately saying and, um, and to have clarity in that. So, you know, I'm always amazed at something like Paul, when speaking of Jesus's work in Ephesians four, you know, from Psalm 68, he even seems to change a word there. You know, he um, led captivity on, uh, on high captivity captive. And he, um, I think the old, the old one says, received gifts from men. Um, you know, Paul, Paul says he, he, he gave gifts to men. So he understood that in the receiving, there was giving, right? And the mm -hmm. New Covenant makes that very, very clear for us. So that's a really good point. Chris, here's another issue. Um, the issue of exegesis. For those of you in the studio audience who don't know what that word means, it just means to excavate the text. And the opposite would be eisegesis, which means to put in or shovel in. We can put it that way, use it that way. So the question is, um, those who believe in what's called the historical grammatical method, which I don't think you reject, I think you would use, they would accuse those of, those of you who engage in Christ-centered preaching as jettisoning that usage, the historical grammatical method, and putting Christ in the text where he isn't. So eisegesis rather than exegesis. Right. Yeah, I mean, again, I think that gets back to looking at, you know, exactly what the author is. There is context <laughs> that, can't yeah. be, that can't be missed and um, that we can't rip out. And um, I, I would say that's exactly what they're doing um, in response, because they're missing the, the unity of the, of the scriptures and the goal of the scriptures um, by, um, by trying to divorce the scriptures from the great objective of showing us the person, the work of Jesus. So, um, I think to be fair, though, there has been a lot of, there's been a lot of Christ-centered preaching that hasn't been done well. So I think there's a reaction mm -hmm. to Christ-centered preaching that is artificially done. You know, I, I mean, I, I sort of hate the sort of cliche and, 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 and the, the approach that I often hear, and, and this comes out sometimes from seminarians, you know, um, we preach a text that's law. See, this really gets into kind of a law gospel hermeneutic here, right? which is really important. <laughs> how we're using the law and how we're using the gospel and what is the aim in both of those, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes I'll hear a, a, a law text that, and, and, you know, you have third use of the law, which, which guides Christians and thankful living and doesn't come as heavy handed. It's meant to uh, encourage them in their freedom that they're already forgiven to now live and be who they are in Christ. Right. As opposed to absolutely crushing somebody with the law. And sometimes I'll hear uh, Christ center preaching that says that crushes with the law. And then it ends on that one line, but don't worry, Jesus did it all for you. <laughs> I go nuts <laughs> when I hear that kind of preaching. I, um, that is that is not the way to do Christ-centered preaching. So I guess what I want to recognize, you know, in light of what these guys have probably heard sometimes, is that kind of approach to Christ-centered preaching that doesn't really show the organic whole of how it should be done and the natural way it should be done 
uh, as the scriptures intend for that. So, you know, we don't we don't just want to find Jesus where he where he isn't. At the same time, Jesus is everywhere in the text. So how do we do it in a in a way that is helpful to the people? That's that's fair. So I think there's a reaction, is what I'm saying, to sometimes what comes across as very ar artificial approach to scripture. And I would suggest that that um, when it's done well, it breaks down that that very concern. So you would say that you're not opposed to expository preaching, but there is more to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think expository preaching is incredibly helpful. I at, at the same time, I would say expository preaching can be very cumbersome because it misses the whole and you can't yes. you cannot get a sense. Of the of what the author is really accomplishing by saying now we're going to be really faithful by expositorily working, you know, line by line, word by word, sentence by sentence, and then you miss the structure and whole of what the author tried to accomplish, and that's what I I would say with Mayhew and these guys they've done, exactly they missed the forest through the trees they do, and I think something that Kim Riddlebarger said that really stuck to me when we had him on, as he says he likes to preach the box top. It's all about the box top and the puzzle, right? Yeah. That, you know, you can get so detailed with the puzzle that you miss everything else. And there he comes like the issues of eschatology, right? When we talk about those things. And to me, I rather have, and Kim said he'd rather have this as well, the box top, that, that, that his congregation learned the box top and learned the big picture of scripture, the grand scheme of things, rather than the details that no one really is going to remember, to be honest with you, because a lot of people can't grasp that stuff. Um, and I think, again, when you delve into the text and you're parsing every Greek word, it becomes a lecture, right? Rather than anything else, right? It, and, then, and then you get caught up and you get sidetracked, I think, and it becomes kind of a rabbit trail, and you're missing the big picture, which is about Christ. Right. And, and I've always, I found in my time in ministry, standing back from the text and looking at the big picture and making sure that, you know, I, I'm, I'm very convinced the Bible's a preaching book, and it's given to us in what we call pericopes. And those <laughs> pericopes, when you use, you know, when, when you're observant, of what the author's doing, you can see those pericopes and to stand back from them and preach larger sections like that. I mean, Genesis is just fabulous for this. It's, it's broken down so easily for the preacher. And a lot of guys fight against that and they want to zero in. I don't agree with the Martin Lloyd-Jones approach to preach 10 sermons on but now. I don't think that's helpful for God's people. Right. <laughs> so, you know, he may have been a very Christ-centered preacher and could get away with it. Um, but I think it's like you're saying, uh, Matthew, it's really helpful to stand back from the text and show what the author's doing and, 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 and sort of reconstruct that to show what his purpose and goals. So you lead people to a solution of what is clearly a law gospel, you know, emphasis in the text. You can find that. For, for those who are not aware, can you please explain the distinction between law and gospel or how you arrive at that? Sure. Sure. I mean, law and scripture is comes in the form of a command it tells us what to do who you know what to do what are the commands of the lord it says do this um, gospel is the announcement when we're looking at it objectively first corinthians 15 of a work that is entirely outside of us by christ and that work that is announced all throughout the pages of scripture tells us what god has done for us in christ 
So, so again, th those categories are very helpful, found all throughout the Reformation or Sinus, um, that scripture comes to us overarchingly this way as law or gospel. Now, the question is, is what is the goal in using law or gospel? What is that text particularly trying to accomplish, right? And that's where it takes um, wisdom and uh, help um, by, from the Lord to discern how best to approach that text with the aim to lead people to the gospel. And I think that gets lost when you look at a text and forget that that's the primary aim of scripture is to show forth um, the glories of Christ. And that's where Christ-centered preaching comes in, and that's what it accomplishes. Yes. Chris, Chris, real quick, would you say that Christ-centered preaching is synonymous with gospel-centered preaching? We often use hear that term as well. Depends on how gospel is being defined. Because a lot of people today say this is a gospel issue, and really it's a law issue. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, you right. Know, um, I, I, I get agitated by that because today with all the social justice stuff and all the movements in the church that are being adopted you know hands down by many people what they say gospel is a gospel issue is not historically what the writers would think is a gospel issue in fact right text redefined today in light of you know that whole narrative that it's all about power structures and abuse so they're ripping these texts right out of context and redefining them as we have classically understood them to now make them gospel issues to crush people with the law. And that's exactly so, right. So, so, so when you say, is it synonymous? It just depends. Um, how objective am I using that word gospel? <laughs> right? Yeah. What, what is, what am I, what am I saying when I say gospel? If you're saying first Corinthians 15, you know, um, Christ died, rose again, according to the scriptures, we're talking about his objective work. Then I would say, yes. Um, if, if people want to say that, um, use gospel more broadly and talk about our works, then I would say no. Yeah. Right. And when Jesus says, be holy, like your father in heaven is holy, that would that be law or gospel? Yeah. And, th and this gets to kind of a big debate today. A lot of guys now in our circles want to say, well, that's gospel. Um, um, but we're specifically receiving a command there of uh -huh. our action, right? So um, if I'm preaching that as I should preach that as a third use of the law, there's a gospel tone that even drives the way I use that. Mm -hmm. do, do you know what I'm saying? Exactly. I'm not, I'm not thundering down first use. Uh, as Paul said, the law was given um, you know, to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin. In that particular text, you know, I'm going to use that passage to drive people to thankfulness because that's the only way they're going to want to be holy is when they understand the marvels of God's love for them. So it has to be properly driven, right? That's a very important point. I know Scott Clark has talked about this when you, about legal preaching. The le it's not just about the text. It's also about your tone and how it comes across. So there's a homiletic issue is here as well. And so you could preach, you know, a, a a, a complete gospel passage with a legal tone and really confuse your audience. Right. No, absolutely. Um, you can, you can put them back under the law for condemnation. And isn't it interesting how, how clear Paul was to make that distinction when he spoke to the sheep who were struggling with life and sin and difficulties to, to speak to them in such a way as to appreciate their freedom that they already have in Christ and that what he's laying on them is not some new yoke, 
but to live in the enjoyment of what they already have through the forgiveness of their sins. Um, mm -hmm. The impulse in us as pastors is, you know, I won't mention names here, but the impulse in us and pastors is I don't really like the sanctification in my people. I'm going to fix that because they're all saying they all should be as sanctified as I am. Right. Well, I mean, I'll name, I'll name names. How about Paul Washer? <laughs> so, yeah. so, I mean, there's a perfect example. Program. You can name names. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so anyways, that's, that's, uh, I, I, you know, when we do that, we have to be careful because what we're imposing on them, it's easy to, to come back legally hard on people and crush them and to try to inspire to get our people to respond, to get our people to be better Christians. And the question is, is, is what does the, what do the scriptures motivate us and how do they motivate us to be, to be holy for God is holy, right? And there's a yeah. gospel tone that drives that. There's a freedom in the spirit that drives that. There's a note, you're no longer under condemnation that drives that. If you want to create a bunch of angry fighting people, put them back under the law. I've seen it and crush them. You know? Yeah. The irony is really what you've just been getting at. Like we have, for, for instance, together for the gospel, right? And you hear all the sermons that are really they're really about anything other than the gospel they're, they're all about law most of the time yeah unfortunately yeah it's a problem yeah and you when you have that gratitude that comes from the gospel the finished work of christ applied to you your own life that is we've talked about this in, in other episodes that's the engine that drives your sanctification and so that i i can see how um that engine can be lost and because you can't really grow in guilt you, you can't, you will, you can grow in gratitude. So going back to Christ-centered preaching, uh, you, you, would you say that uh, this is called the redemptive historical approach? Uh, and would that be a, a, a hermeneutic that most uh, reformed or covenantal preachers would, would uh, assign themselves to? Yeah. And, and again, you know, it's so sad in our day that all these terms, uh, people fight over them and then they, they, they get boxed into a certain way. They understand a term. right? And, and then, and then um, you sometimes get afraid to use a term because you don't know how people are understanding the term. So, um, but historically the answer to that is very clearly. Yes. I mean, we're looking at all of scripture and seeing the redemptive historical story that is unfolding the drama, uh, the, the great narrative that's unfolding um, to show Jesus from all of scripture. And um and you can't, you know, going throughout the entire Old Testament, I, I preached Genesis twice. Genesis in my first church up in Linden, Washington, and then Genesis when I came to Escondido. That series fundamentally changed the church because what they saw in that was everything that we believe in the covenant of grace that's come to fulfillment, all promise driven by the gospel in these saints. Like, you know, the gospel was preached to Abraham. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus was preached to Abraham. Yeah. Jesus was preached to Abraham and they live by faith in the promise, the same with the same promises that we have. And um, all those narratives are showing that struggle um, and struggle of faith to embrace these promises and to live by faith in what Jesus, the seed would come and do for us. Right. Amen. Yeah. So that's Galatians three. All right. So there are some reformed preachers that uh, hold to 
that every text in scripture uh, talks about Christ. Uh, do you also hold to that? So this is where I think um, we have to be somewhat fair with like Mayhew and the critics that, for instance, if I'm preaching Ephesians, that structure of that book is really helpful to answer this question. The first three chapters are all indicative. There's nothing of, in, of, of command in those first three chapters. They, um, they describe what Jesus has done for us in every possible way. All the beauties of the gospel, every major doctrine of grace is outlined there. Election, forgiveness, redemption, um, saved by grace alone through faith alone, chapter two. Um, this should make, you know, all of us, you know, marvel in the love of God. He's praying that we would, you know, comprehend with the saints, the height, depth, and width of the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. First three chapters are all that. And then in chapter four, he, he drives us to, um, to response to that. But again, that response has already been set and prepared by a gospel foundation, right? So if I had preached the first three chapters of Philippians, I mean, of Ephesians, and I'm now moving into four, five, and six, and he's telling me how to love my wife. I'm going to root it in what I've already done, but I shouldn't be afraid to give the imperative now as the driving force because the foundation's already been laid, right? Yeah, amen. And that's where I think sometimes if you artificially, artificially force Jesus into texts that are where that's already been accomplished and now it's driving the response, I, I do think you can you can do harm to true and good Christ-centered preaching. You have to give a ministry as a whole the, 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 um, the credit of the foundation that's been laid. And then if you are preaching a law text while you're rooting it in response um, in your sanctification to what Christ has done, and you're making sure that's clear, you should be able to feel free to preach now the imperative. <laughs> so. Yeah. You know, and that I think is is wrong if we fall into to that air of of feeling pressure that now I can't tell people how to live. Mm -hmm. the foundation's sure. been laid, right? Sure, that goes back to the law gospel distinctions that we talked about earlier, and so the imperatives would be the the law, if you will, uh, because yeah, based upon the gospel indicatives that we just heard. Right. Yeah, I think that distinction, distinctive is those distinctions are very important to that, uh, to the right understanding. Yeah, right. And, and I mean, let's face it, the New Testament gives a lot of practical instruction that needs to be given to God's people. Again, how is that motivated? Right. And what drives that? And if the pastor has not done his job in rooting people in the love of God in Christ, then that's going to be a fruitless endeavor. And one thing about it is that it's not just gospel preaching, it's law and gospel preaching. Right. Right. So does redemptive historical, that approach, that hermeneutic, uh, does that diminish Christ in any way? Because that is another contention. That's another argument that um, the other side would have uh, because they state that without the historical grammatical approach, uh, you're not you're evading a single meaning of the passage and you're evading the authorial intent. So how would you respond to that? Um, well, authoritar uh, the, the authorial intent of a text is, is really important, right? <laughs> what is the author doing? And again, I think that's why when you're 
in the process of exegesis and, and interpretation, um, you're looking at what the author is doing as a whole. You're not so zeroing in on a text that you miss the whole enchilada. And this is what I think happens in the Mayhew approach. We talked about this a moment ago. You're so zeroed in, I would argue that you do disjust, you do an injustice to the preaching of Jesus and showing forth his work because you're not really developing what the author is trying to accomplish as a whole. Mm -hmm. But even if I come to a text that has um, a call out in one of the minor prophets for a bad sin in Israel, um, you know that's leading to a call in that particular uh, author for people to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So you're not so separating uh, that as to leave people there you're, you're even in that preaching of a particular text, you're not missing the whole enchilada. It's really important to show what the whole intention of the author is. So remember, when they sat down to read these books, they would read them as a whole in one setting. They didn't micro-preach them the way that we're doing today. Right. And, you know, it's very important that you bring that up. It's, for instance, that um, example with Israel is that we have to look at it that way. We are Christians we're not Jews. We have the realization that the Messiah has come. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that um, everything that, you know, we learned from Israel, you know, was really what Paul said in Romans 10 to stop our mouths in our own righteousness. <laughs> right. Romans three, Romans two, into Romans two, everything that was written there had a purpose to shut us up and to submit to the righteousness of God in Christ, right? To not try to establish our own righteousness, Romans 9 and 10. And uh, when you understand that goal, then you see that, that um, the failure of Israel in this was exactly that. They did not submit to the righteousness of God in Christ. They tried to establish their own righteousness. And uh, what the New Testament comes along and says is all that was written as examples for us so that we don't do the same thing, right? And that we look to Jesus and trust in him. So that's why it has to be a unifying message of his person and work, or we will fall into the same trap as Israel, which I think the Mayhew and some of these guys approach lends itself to a very legal tone that makes no distinction between the place of Israel and the place of, of us as God's people now living in fulfillment. Right, right. Uh, I I was listening to, you know, Mayhew and um, others in regards to this um, position, and you know their perspective. Of course, uh, the other argument I've heard is that an overemphasis of this redemptive historical Christ-centered type of preaching will uh, will cause problems in a lot of areas in the in the christian's life uh, for example they mentioned sanctification so they're stating that uh, they're stating that if you if if the gospel is everything quote unquote then that'll be a detriment to somebody's sanctification so and matt and i were talking about this prior to the show and uh we're saying this is the this is the continued theme with uh neonomians right where they their focus is on like you said what can i do to make my congregation more sanctified right and and the answer the lord has already given to us right which is the gospel 
the gospel is that engine. So how would you respond to something like uh, that quote? It was from uh, Abner Chow. Why don't I play the clip for Chris? It's illustrated in the recent debates on sanctification. When you make the gospel everything and all that the Bible says, and that's it. That's his only word on sanctification, a canon within a canon. You're going to have an unbalanced view of sanctification. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be harmful. And it's going to destroy people's lives. This does matter. And along those lines, you're going to have bibliological issues. Why? Because that's going to be a low view of Scripture. When you start excluding parts of Scripture out, you're saying they don't matter. They're not important as they are. And therefore, you're going to have a low view of Scripture. Block even comments that this hermeneutic often evolves into the talent of the preacher as opposed to the text proclaimed. That's a reader-based hermeneutic, the very opposite of what the Christocentric hermeneutic proposes. You have a low view of Scripture. And again, they know that. And ultimately... You're going to, all this is going to dovetail into Christ. You're going to have a lower view of Christ. If you make bad connections, you're not going to honor Christ because you're going to discredit why he's glorious. If you make bad connections, you're going to miss connections that could give you a higher view of Christ. Block, for example, points out with a discussion about Joshua that often people want to make Joshua and Jesus a type of each other, but they miss that Jesus name, the one who saves is about God. God is the one who delivered Israel, not Joshua. God is the one who conquered. And therefore, Jesus is God. By un or misconnecting the dots of the text, you actually have a lower Christology than you should have. And even more than that, you're going to miss the full framework and context of our Lord. Think with me about Revelation 4 and 5. Here is the scene awaiting the one who will possess the scroll. Christ is the fulfillment of all history and theology. He's the climax and culmination of all history and theology. But if you don't have much history and you don't have much theology, then he's the climax of nothing. He doesn't do much. He's less glorious. And think about it. Those visions in Revelation 4 and 5, their background goes to books like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. If you have not mastered those books, you have a lower view of Christ, a lesser view of Christ. You have devalued him. Put it this way. The scripture has a perfect articulation of truth. It is inerrant. It is God's word. Therefore, if we create a canon within a canon, we will inherently disturb that balance of the articulation of truth. Okay, there we go. I think you got the gist of it. It's funny when he started bringing it up about Revelation. I'm like, that's exactly our point. <laughs> I mean, what a jumbled mess. What he yeah. just said was a jumbled mess. Um, seriously, he got all animated and excited and, and said nothing, to, to, but made a bunch of unclear statements. Um, yeah, the Revelation 4-5, he's celebrating Christ as the fulfillment of all the scriptures. He just admitted it. So um, I don't I don't know what I mean. He's tried to set up a real big straw man. And um there were so many thoughts that were racing through my head as he was as he was saying these things. But that last point is really good, Matthew. If you're gonna herald Christ as the fulfillment of the one on the throne, that all of Isaiah and that Daniel and all the ones talked about, then amen, you better be preaching him from the old testament. Um, because you're not going to understand Revelation 4 and 5. Mm -hmm. Revelation is full of the garb of the Old Testament. The garb of the Old Testament makes Revelation. And so if you don't have a Christ-centered hermeneutic, um, you're going to destroy. Well, no wonder they're dispensational. <laughs> so anyways, um, so, so, so here's, here's the thing. Um, when it comes to the gospel, you know, Bob Godfrey wrote a helpful article a while back. Some would disagree with it, 
but I think it answers this, this charge that we're going to actually be diminishing sanctification in the life of, of God's people with this hermeneutic. Um, when you're, when you have to define what you're, you're talking about when you talk about gospel. Are we only talking about the objective work of Jesus outside of us, or does good news also include the announcement that God will sanctify us? Bob Godfrey says in his article that there is gospel that's used in different ways in the New Testament, and I think without bringing confusion into this discussion, I think it's helpful to recognize that hermeneutic there tends to assume that if we just preach Jesus, now sanctification, we're on our own. And that's where a big mistake is made, where we would say that God not only justifies us, but he sanctifies us. Is that good news? That's Great. good news. <laughs> that's good news that Amen. he does the primary work of sanctification. So actually, I would push back and say, that when we're talking about sanctification, the primary work is the sanctifier. And there is an announcement made in the scriptures that he's going to complete the work. And, and even the good works that are given to us to do are prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the point is, is God doesn't just say, hey, preach Jesus, I'll justify you. Now you're on your own. And now you're going to go live a rebellious, profligate life. That, that's not in any way any Christ-centered preacher would say, because they understand that there is a necessary connection when God justifies a, a sinner through the proclamation of Christ and him crucified, that there's an inseparable, inseparable connection to sanctification. And that is also a work of free grace, as the Westminster says. You, you know what's funny is that you can tell that none of these guys have listened to Christ-centered preaching when they make comments like that. It's, 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 and it's a knee-jerk reaction. What they always do is they point to someone like Tulian Chavigian with, with what happened to him. He's one to point to and say that's, that's, that's a, an abuse of what, of what it could be, but he's not the standard. Right. No, exactly right. Yeah. He, you know, Tulian, he, did, he really did use the gospel to justify his licentious behavior. Yeah. You know, people often say that his books were full of errors. Actually, it's not the case. I mean, his lifestyle contradicted what he preached. I mean, if you read, for instance, one of his books, like, let's say, Jesus uh, plus, plus, what is it? Uh, gosh, what is it? Jesus plus no nothing equals everything. I think that's the book. But here's the thing. Horton endorsed the book. And if you read the book, a lot of it sounds Horton-esque. And the reason why is because someone like him learned from Horton. But here's the thing. That does not negate the truth of the subject matter. He was inconsistent with what he taught. Right. He was inconsistent. This is why Paul says we have to guard not only our doctrine, but our life. And as pastors, and he didn't guard his life. And he used his doctrine to justify his life. And, um, you know, that should, that should be unequivocally condemned. I mean, you know, if anyone does that to the gospel, this is what, this is exactly why Paul's asking the question, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Of course not. Right. Of course not. I mean, so that behind that statement that, or that statement you just played is exactly what Paul anticipated <laughs> that people would say when you preach Jesus. He anticipated Amen. this. He anticipated yeah. it by saying, listen, people are going to come along and say, if you do that, if you do that, then you're going to justify 
a licentious life. And Paul, Paul numerous times, Romans 2, Romans 6, he goes after that and says, listen, anyone who would say that, let them be condemned. We're not saying that. But it does make the point that if you properly preach Christ and him crucified, those who don't understand that great um, responsibility of the pastor are easily going to fall into making that charge. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, we often, yeah. We're, you're right. We often hear from those same teachers about the demands of the gospel. Yeah. And Paul ever accused of being a legalist? No. But he was always accused of being a what? An antinomian. antinomian. Exactly yeah. right. Why was he accused of being an antinomian? Because he had a Christ-centered hermeneutic in his preaching, and he preached justification by grace through faith alone, because of Christ alone, freely imputed, you know, by God's merciful grace. Amen. And so he got, he got charged with that left and right. This is why the Judaizers were so mad at him. And you can't help but to say, you know, to these people, you, do you realize you sound a little bit like a Judaizer? in the way that you criticize us, sounds like how Paul got criticized. Right, exactly. That's a good so, point. Chris, would you say that the indicatives, of course, are important to preach, uh, but would you say the imperatives are equally important, grounded by the indicatives? Yeah, I think, I think we have to be really clear on that point, Onig. I'm glad you asked that, because wherever this goes, let them hear us clearly. <laughs> you know, um, we preach all of Scripture. All of Scripture is profitable for correction, if you're going to correct, it's with the law. <laughs> like Matthew was right. saying, we preach the law um, for rebuke, for training and instruction and in righteousness. The man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in preaching, um, you know, the imperatives of scripture, if they're in front of me. The question is, what am I trying to accomplish? And what have I rooted those imperatives in? And uh, there, there's times where you're going to come and you're going to read the law of God, Exodus 20, in the first juice kind of way to crush to crush and show people their sin and their misery, and then lead them to forgiveness. That's why we have a confession and absolution part in our worship services. Amen. You're working through books and you come to how Paul treated New Testament Christians in trying to help them with their sanctification. You're going to root those calls. You're going to explain that word, explain holiness, explain uh, the applications of scripture rooted in the love of God in Christ. I just don't think this is rocket science, but maybe that sounds arrogant. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to uh, util using the imperatives uh, with guilt as as their as their grounds for sanctification or, or for growth in Christ. Yeah. Would we be troubled if if um, you guys came in Sunday and I was preaching up Ephesians five, love your wives as Christ loved the church? And I really unpacked that and called us to love our children and be obedient to those in authority over us. If I had a sermon that, that primarily was telling us how to, how to do that on a Sunday, uh, should people be, um, be mad at me? Um, well, there are some who, who might, and there are some, you know, um, that might come in and say, I didn't hear enough Jesus in that sermon. And um, I would say, are you a member of this church? How much have you heard me preach Jesus? <laughs> yeah, right. And, right. and, 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 uh, do you realize that, you know, I've labored my whole ministry to preach Jesus and now on a third use of the law text, since I've laid that foundation, well, um, does that trouble you? Then we, we do have a problem. However, I, I think, um, I think it needs to be very clear what my goal is in preaching that imperative 
and it is in the freedom that has already been won for them in Christ. So that's going to be there and it should be there. That's the difference. You know, there's an excellent, that's an excellent point. It made me think of something. One of the flaws of mainline expositional preaching, such as we have heard from Abner Chow and Dick Mayhew and others, is that since they don't distinguish between law and gospel, and they're just staying in a passage, let's say they're staying in a, in a law passage, and they're not, they're not distinguishing the two. They're not saying, okay, this is a law passage or a gospel passage. They're just in this passage. And they're saying, we're, we're trying to stay faithful in this text. Well, let's say it is a law passage, and they don't move on from it, and they don't tie it into Christ in any shape, way, or manner, right? What you're going to do is you're going to leave your congregation in despair when they walk out those doors. Right. No, that's true. And, but even if, even let's just say, that a gospel preacher preached a sermon that was primarily law that Sunday. How did he do it? In other words, I still think, even if that were done, um, if, the, if the people have a sense and know their pastor, and even people who've walked in off the streets and understand that this pastor is for me, he's not angrily yelling at me. Mm-hmm. He's not trying to crush me. You could, you could sense the whole gospel spirit in the imperative. So in other words, it doesn't have the effect that you just described because the very nature of the pastor understands what he's doing and what he's trying to accomplish in the life of God's people and driving them to a thankful life. Mm -hmm. I'm saying I'm still going to root that clearly in the person and the work of Jesus. But I'm saying even if that didn't happen, there's two ways it could happen with gospel tone. (laughs) Right, exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, we've had enough people, you know, I mean, just think of the sort of stereotype of the frontier pastor out on the American frontier in the 19th century, getting up and just yelling at his congregation over alcohol, you know, and just yelling at his congregation for not being sanctified enough. That's sort of the imagery we have of the like old school pastor in America. Well, shame, shame on that if that was ever what it was, right? Because Onyx, that doesn't change people. <laughs> Onyx sat under that for 25 years, so nothing to do. <laughs> yeah, they they really focused on the symptoms rather than the um, you know the cause of the, the issue, which is you know the heart. I mean, they wouldn't they wouldn't say that the heart's not the issue. They would, but they're preaching. They're practically is focusing on all the symptoms rather than the core problem. You know, the, and the, the big thing that's forgotten in this, brothers, is, is how powerful sin is mm-hmm. over, over people's lives still, even as believers. Sin is very powerful, and sin knocks us back. And um, we're good at looking right now at the sins of, you know, the culture and our leaders and, and, and everyone else without, you know, realizing how damaging sin is still in the lives of, of God's people. And so how do you remedy that? What is your goal? It is to, um, to drive them to the foot of Christ and to his forgiveness and to marvel at his strength to deliver all these messes all throughout scripture and redemptive history. People who were bad, broken. Abraham was no great saint. Abraham was a bumbling fool in those early chapters (laughs) for a reason, you know, to teach us this. And if you miss this, if, if you set this aside, thinking you're going to sanctify God's people um, by pounding the law into them and missing, showing them the glories of Jesus, you're the one 
you're the one doing the great damage to God's people. I don't know if you're aware of some of the criticisms that were um, pointed at Dane Ortland in his book, uh, Gentle and Lowly. Have you ever seen that? No. Are you familiar with the book? I'm familiar with the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't follow the, there's, there's a criticism on everything that's written today. So I don't know. Well, but it's funny, but it's like, if you dare talk about, you know, the meekness of Christ and his loving kindness, you know, they're, they're afraid that there's an overemphasis that that's going to lead to a licentious lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. If Christ is, is not always preached as King and judge, um, if you don't preach those things, you're, you're leading your congregation to licentiousness. I mean, really? Well, I would argue that when you preach Jesus that way, um, <laughs> my experience has been when you preach Jesus that way, and he's, he's always has the heavy hand on you, that actually is what drives the licentiousness. Right, exactly. And, and the Pharisee behavior that looks at, you know, the big sins of everyone else, but if you refuses to pull the log out of your own eye. You know, all true gospel preaching has a sense of leveling the playing field um, so that we're all realized that we're guilty before the Lord and have missed the mark by far. And uh, if somebody like David could fall into a sin like he did, so could I. And I need, I need Absolutely. the grace of God in my life every day to uphold because without that, without coming to Christ, without looking to him for help and trying to do this on my own, I will, I will run into all manner of sins. And if yeah. you have to preach him as an angry judge, I'll never be able to please him enough to right, to even want to stop. <laughs> right. So um, we have to receive his, his, his merciful, gracious hand of forgiveness that will inspire our lives. And let's admit, even that should inspire us a lot more to holiness than it does. We have Amen. to that. And at times it just doesn't. We're that sins that deceitful. Amen. No, that's very true. Yeah. Thank you for that, Chris. Chris, uh, well, since we're running out of time, why don't you tell us where people can reach you? So uh, you can, uh, abounding, I've been doing the Abounding Grace radio um, um, yeah, program for since 2005. So you can go to agradio.org, agradio.org, the I, I write there some articles and, and we have articles from other pastors and, and sermons that are put up every week. And, um, and we air on numerous places throughout the U S Canada and Africa. And then you can go to the escondidourc.org website and also find uh, the messages there. I would highly recommend that everybody listen to abounding grace. It's definitely on my top five on my Apple podcasts. I listen to it regularly. I get fed and I'm encouraged. And I would encourage you to do the same. And um, where can we be reached? We can be reached at uh, bttrmen.org. That's our website, back to the reformationministry.org. Our email address is info at bttrmen.org, or you can get, uh, reach us at back to the reformation at gmail.com. Uh, this podcast can be heard on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and we're slowly getting uh, the sound bites up in YouTube as well. So, well, Chris, I just want to thank you for coming back on the show again. It was a pleasure having you. Good to see you, brothers, and um, keep up the good work. This is great. Thanks. And you have been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast, and we hope you join us again next time. See you.